0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. We have to confess as we commence this show that we are sick of politics of the past few weeks. Therefore, for our first segment today, we are going to completely ignore what happened this week. We'll get to that in segment two. The only thing I want to say about the elections, the first segment today, is that, you know, those old punch cards were a lot faster to work than to fill in those damn ovals page after page. And, you know, frankly, punch cards aren't a problem when someone isn't trying to steal the election. All right, let's go on to on this date in history, which is November 9th. On November 9th, in 1923, in Munich, armed policemen and troops loyal to Germany's democratic government crushed Adolf Hitler's Beer Hall Putsch, the first attempt by the Nazi party at seizing control of the German government. German General Ludendorff was so disgusted by the sight of Adolf Hitler fleeing from the police authorities that he regarded him forever after as a coward. On November 9th in 1961, record store manager Brian Epstein went down to the Cavern Nightclub in Liverpool, England to hear a local band. They were called The Beatles. Epstein then became the band's manager. They did go on to some later success in the record industry. So please, love me too. On this date in 1970, the U.S. Supreme Court rejected a Massachusetts state law which allowed residents to refuse military service in an undeclared war, the Vietnam Conflict. That war, like our current war in Iraq, was not a declared war by the Congress of the United States as prescribed by the U.S. Constitution. And on a happy note, on November 9, 1989, East Germany opened the Berlin Wall, allowing free travel from East Berlin to West Berlin. The following day, exuberant Germans began tearing down the wall. We couldn't decide among which two conflicting quotes to use for our quote of the day, because they're both appropriate for Radio Parallax, so we'll use them both. The first comes from philosopher Blaise Pascal, who once said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. We balance that off with the words of another philosopher, in this case, Bertrand Russell, who countered with, there is much pleasure to be gained from useless knowledge. In fact, we're thinking about making that the motto of Radio Parallax. There is much pleasure to be gained from useless knowledge. In fact, by God, we're going to put that on our website somewhere. Since we had two quotes, let's do two statistics of the day. Statistic A, according to the Chicago Tribune, is that of the 100 million people added to the U.S. population since 1967, 55 million were immigrants or their U.S.-born offspring. And yes, something does need to be done about illegal immigration to this country, something we'll talk about in future programs. Statistic B... According to Newsday, is that among American adults, 6% of women and 5.5% of men can be categorized as compulsive shoppers. That's according to researchers at Stanford University School of Medicine. Women tend to indulge in jewelry, perfume, and clothes, but men have a weakness for electronic equipment, tools, and books. And our jokes of the day, we pulled off the internet. The, the premise was, you really know you work in corporate America if... Dot, 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 you sit in a cubicle smaller than your bedroom closet. You know you work in corporate America if you sat at the same desk for four years and worked for three different companies. You know you work for corporate America if you order your business cards in half orders instead of whole boxes. You know you really work for corporate America when someone asks about what you do for a living and you lie. And my favorite, you know you work in corporate America if you learn about your layoff on CNN. Let's go to a few items from the Week magazine. First of all, from the Only in America file. According to the magazine, a federal judge has awarded $24.2 million to two men who were burnt by a power cable while illegally climbing on top of an Amtrak train. Jeffrey Klein and Brett Birdwell, both 17 at the time of the 2002 accident, argued in their lawsuit that Amtrak should have posted signs warning passengers that locomotives were powered by electricity and they were not safe to climb. Joseph Rhoda, the young man's lawyer, conceded that it would have been their fault if they'd fallen off the train, but that Amtrak should be held responsible for the unannounced, unwrapped, unmonitored 12,500-volt power cable on top of the train. So, if any of you out there are contemplating climbing on top of Amtrak trains, we would like to serve notice that locomotives are indeed sometimes powered by electricity. On a happier note, we have this following rather remarkable story from Murfreesboro, Arkansas, at the Crater of Diamonds State Park in Murfreesboro, which is the world's only publicly operated diamond site where visitors can search for and keep gems. Apparently, a Wisconsin man visiting the state park found a 5.47-carat canary diamond. Bob Wheel evidently uncovered this stone in October, uh, making it even larger than the 4.21-carat specimen, which was found in the park last March. That one was valued at $60,000. Wheelstone, which is a bright yellow, has no visible flaws, and is probably worth a lot more than that. Said a park spokesman, it makes you think of lemon drop candy. For my money, if I ever make it to Arkansas, which is one of five states I've never set foot in, uh, I'm going to try my hand at that park. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for a man's right to choose, after an Illinois judge ruled against a woman who wanted to have her nine-year-old son circumcised against his will and over the objections of his father. Despite some claims of health benefits, said Judge Jordan Kaplan, the ancient religious ritual is not a medical necessity. It was, uh, according to the magazine, conversely, a bad week for exotic tourism. This with the news that the Tora Bora Caves of Afghanistan, where Osama bin Laden once hid from U.S. troops, will be converted into a $10 million resort. <laughs> it was a picnic spot long before anyone ever heard of Osama bin Laden, said Afghan warlord Gol Agha Sherazi, who has gone into real estate development. Well, you can laugh, but we'd have to say that guys like Gol Agha Shirazi have changed the face of California. Well, I would say as late as even a generation ago, you would, you would may have to drive as much as 20 miles to go to a strip mall. But uh, we at Radio Parallax, having seen pictures of Tora Bora, are quite skeptical about this real estate agent's assertion that it was a picnic spot from, from a long time ago. It's a picnic spot in, say, the manner of, you know, Craters of the Moon National Monument in Idaho would be a great spot for a picnic. But our final item. Last week was judged an ugly week, I think really by any standards, for designated driving after Alfredo Martinez, 37, of Nevada, realized he was intoxicated and sensibly asked his son to drive him home from a local bar. Unfortunately, Martinez's son is seven years old. Police stopped the vehicle because it was weaving dangerously across several lanes. Mr. Martinez blandly tried to explain to police that he thought it would be a good time to give his son a driving lesson. The police, on the other hand, evidently felt the lesson came about nine years, prematurely. And that's it for the good, the bad, and the ugly. We have a pile of miscellaneous news items that are here in front of us. I think we need to clear the deck on some of these. Um, Dan Rather is going to be returning to television. Apparently he has been replaced by Katie Couric on the CBS Evening News, but Dan Rather reports on HDNet, a high-definition TV network that airs in three million homes, uh, is going to go forward soon. This will be a weekly news program. In the opinion of Radio Parallax, this will probably be more good than bad. Conversely, we have a story that's a lot more bad than good. In fact, it's hard to see any good in this story. But apparently, the United States Postal Service will soon be phasing out It's 23,000 posted stamp vending machines. According to the Postal Service, many of the machines are 20 years old. And officials say that given the declining volume or first-class mail, it makes no sense to maintain them. The first machines to go, naturally, will be those that are broken or in low-traffic areas. And by 2010, all will be gone. Customers, of course, will still be able to buy stamps from postal clerks. And, of course, I think we all know what a joy that experience is. So, I mean, wh- why have the convenience of machines located in your post office where you can go and wait in line? Fortunately, you can buy stamps in a lot of supermarkets, so at least that'll help. And we have to talk about one of the weirdest news stories that we have stumbled upon uh, in quite a while. This, this deserves some attention. It's not getting a whole lot in the American press, although apparently they're talking about it in many countries in South America. According to newspapers in Paraguay, George Herbert Walker Bush, the first President Bush, recently bought an enormous estate in Paraguay, something between 100,000 and 175,000 acres. The estate falls right in the, inside the watershed of the Guarani Aquifer, which is one of the planet's largest freshwater reserves. Oh, and incidentally, Paraguay is the site of a U.S. military base installed just a few years ago after Paraguay promised to grant American soldiers immunity from the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court. This prompted Marina Melendez Quintero, writing in Havana's Juventud Rebelde, to ask, Is George W. Bush preparing to flee the country? We at Radio Parallax don't, uh, don't regard the Cuban press necessarily as the, the vanguard of world journalism, but it does appear they got this story correct. We would refer you to the column by Dr. Les Sachs in vivelacanada.ca. Ms. Menendez Quintero uh, suggested that surely it's no coincidence that last month, just after Paraguay announced that it would not renew the immunity treaty from the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court, that first daughter Jenna Bush was spotted in Paraguay on a secret trip. Ms. Menendez suggested this was perhaps to convince the Paraguayans to reconsider. Frankly, we think that's a bit of a stretch, but we do note that uh, authorities first denied that Jenna Bush was in Paraguay, but later gave out the unlikely explanation that she was there on a charitable mission for UNICEF. Few people believe that cover story. We would refer you, dear listener, to the internet for this story. Uh, I'm sure you can, you can scare up the trail of it uh, on, on the web. But it is curious. There's apparently a large base that's been constructed not far from where this ranch has been purchased. And by the way, apparently one of the Bush family's neighbors will be the Reverend Moon. The South Korean evangelist, Reverend Sun Myung Moon, has apparently purchased a similar-sized gigantic tract of land down in Paraguay. Paraguay, you may recall, was one of the favored uh, places of refuge for those who were uh, fleeing their uh, responsibilities of the former Nazi regime in, in Germany. And I'm trying to think, we meant to talk to you a bit about the death of Alberto Strassner, the former Paraguayan strongman who died uh, a few months back. I'm not, did Mr. McGillen, did, did we talk about that on the show? I don't believe we did. We're going to have to go back and review that one. So at the end of the year, uh, at the end of uh, December, when we look back uh, on those who passed in 2006, we'll have to make uh, make uh, a point to go out of our way to tell you a little bit about the guy that used to run Paraguay. All right, let's close with a few science items. We don't know whether you caught the transit of Mercury yesterday. Hopefully you did so. It did, it did require some... Uh, some proper setup to witness the, uh, the tiny disk of the planet Mercury passing in front of the sun. You had to have a pretty good telescope and a projection system set up. But uh, I'm sure a few of you did, and I'm sure you, uh, you enjoyed the sight of a planet on the disk of our local neighborhood star, the sun. Mercury performs this trick uh, every seven or eight years, but uh, the whole transit only takes five hours, so you've got, you know, a pretty good chance that you'll be on the wrong side of the Earth when it takes place. But nevertheless, if you miss this one, you know, like a car, there'll there'll be another one coming along soon. And in a story we frankly don't really quite understand, at least how they did this, uh, scientists have reported from Puerto Rico that by using the giant Arecibo radio telescope... Researcher Donald Campbell of Cornell University in New York and colleagues have obtained the highest resolution radar imagery of the shadowy craters near the moon's south pole thought to perhaps harbor ice. Now how you can fire a radar beam at one of the poles of the moon and make it turn 90 degrees and tell you what's at the bottom of the crater, we don't know. But anyway, the, uh, the unusual radar signals that uh, formerly were attributed to water ice our thought, uh, perhaps, to not be from that. Various uh, space probes are planned to go out to our local uh, orbiting uh, quasi-planet, uh, our our neighbor, the Moon, and take some pictures that'll really settle this matter. You know, of course, if they can find ice down in the bottom of some of these craters that are perpetually in darkness, this will really help any potential base that humanity is going to establish on the moon. You know, ice would be really helpful to create water. You get it by melting the ice. <laughs> water is pretty hard to come by on the moon. So, uh, you know, I, I, hope, uh, I hope that they're wrong down in Arecibo and that there is some uh, lunar reservoir of the wet stuff. And in a final item that we think is long overdue, we would note that the term schizophrenia has outlived its usefulness. That's according to a panel of British mental health experts. This panel says that symptoms of what is typically called schizophrenia are so broad, including delusions, hearing voices, and hallucinations, that they don't belong under a single diagnosis. Such symptoms could be indications of several different conditions, from trauma to an imbalance in the brain's neurotransmitters. It groups together a whole range of different problems under one label, psychologist Richard Bentall, of the University of Manchester in the U.K., told Scientific American. The assumption is that all these people with all the same problems have the same brain disease. This sort of generalization can lead to poor treatment decisions, Pentel said. It also can be stigmatizing, said psychologist Paul Hammersley, since people said to be schizo are viewed as unpredictable and even dangerous, which is often not the case. This word, Hammersley said, has to go we here at radio parallax from this point forward will refer to schizos only in the sense of politicians which we will talk about in the next segment you're listening to radio parallax i'm douglas everett let's take a short break Let's do it. Let's talk about politics. We never envisioned this program as being a political show, and a lot of times it's not. But in recent years, we've devoted more attention than we wanted to to the political realm. And, um, well, Tuesday night was quite a shocker. It now appears that what uh, Radio Parallax would have called the best case scenario is what actually unfolded across this land on Election Day. The uh, the best possible scenario, according to Optimus, was that uh, the Democrats could pick up 30-plus seats in the House and six Senate seats, and it appears they did exactly that to gain majorities in both Houses of Congress. According to the talking heads on election night and in the aftermath, pundits everywhere acknowledged this means political changes in America. We might add that... Apparently, over in the European Union, all the parliaments were saying, thank God, the nightmare may finally be over. We would remind you that we shared the sentiment of The Economist magazine when it put on its cover two years ago. How could America be so stupid? Or words to that effect. Uh, We've been following this story, as you well know, and uh, our conclusion was... Because America really wasn't that stupid. They cheated. And in the ramp-up to Election Day, we were quite encouraged by the fact that there was a lot of mainstream press coverage about how voting machines could not be trusted and how, you know, we needed to be on guard against possible chicanery. It finally went mainstream and not a moment too soon. And I must confess, watching what happened in the last three national elections, 2000, 2002, and 2004, I said to everyone who would listen that if they stole this one, our democracy was finished. All of the polls across this land showed vast discontent with GOP politics and policies, both in foreign policy regarding the war in Iraq and what is happening here domestically. And it was hardly a matter of so-called liberals or Democrats being disgusted with the current administration. A lot of conservatives were taking a look at uh, the spending policies of the Bush administration and wondering what in the hell ever happened to Republican fiscal conservatism. And had they stolen this election, had we seen a Ukraine-type swing of 10 percentage points Well, I think that would have been the end of American democracy. But fortunately, it appears we may have been saved by the bell. We here at Radio Parallax uh, are somewhat disgusted by the notion that, you know, parties rule our government, that one party getting 51 senators means it can dictate policy, or, you know, 218 congressmen means it can dictate policy. That is an inane concept, and so far from what the framers of our Constitution envisioned for our democracy, that it's just, it's mind-boggling, really. Nevertheless, that is the two-party system that we have evolved into. Although it does crack me up when I hear people talking about how the wisdom of the Founding Fathers is something we shouldn't tamper with. And I say, well, you show me in the Constitution of the United States where it talks about how the ruling party or majority party is going to control all the key committee chairmanships. (laughs) You can look real hard, and I guarantee you, you're not going to find that in the U.S. Constitution. But again, it is what we have evolved into. And uh, such as it is, it's a welcome relief that we do not have one party in control of the executive branch and both and both houses of Congress. Well, we should also mention as an aside, also the Supreme Court. As it stands right now, all four of those entities are controlled by the Republican Party. This will change come Inauguration Day in January. And again, not a minute too soon. It appears uh, that everyone sees that Tuesday was a repudiation of the policies of the right wing, which has seized control of the Republican Party here in the United States, And that people have had about enough of the efforts to make religious beliefs the law of the land. Case in point, voters in South Dakota, which is a very red state, rejected their anti-abortion law passed last year. Anti-abortion activists had ramrodded this bill through, a bill that would make uh, abortion illegal except in cases to save the life of the mother. Well, the voters in South Dakota, conservative though they may be, said you know, that is going way too far. It appears uh, for the first time in maybe 20 tries, an effort by a state to ban gay marriage failed. This, of course, has been an issue the Christian right has been depending upon now for years, but even the public in Arizona decided they'd had enough of that and said, no, we're not going to go there. Let's talk about a few particulars on Election Day before we come back to some generalities. Here in California, Arnold Schwarzenegger absolutely thumped Phil Angelides, which, as you know, dear listener, was frankly okay by us. We're not huge fans of Governor Schwarzenegger, but his beating of, uh, of, of Phil Angelides' early returns, he was beating him 2-1. to one. This, while the entire rest of the nation is running the opposite way, shows you that, uh, you know, Angelo Socapuloso's boy... Uh, was just not the right guy. The rabid Democrats in the state of California decided they couldn't run a good candidate like Steve Wesley, and so they got what they deserved. As for Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, well, he's turned into Gray Davis. He's turned into a full-time fundraising machine, that which he claimed he was coming to Sacramento to clean house about. But at the same time, by current Republican standards... Arnold Schwarzenegger is quite a liberal. He acknowledges such things as the need for stem cell research, the need to address issues of global warming. If he continues to pursue these courses, he may actually be a pretty decent governor for the next four years. At least we can hope so. And the fact that he was born outside the United States means that no matter what what trial balloons... They may try and float. They're not going to change the U.S. Constitution to allow Arnold Schwarzenegger to become President of the United States. And to that we say, thank God. This will allow the governor to concentrate on being the best governor he knows how to be. But actually, the race we thought was the most important race here in California and maybe one of the most important races across the nation, Deborah Bowen defeated Secretary of State Bruce McPherson And we hope we'll set about cleaning up the mess of these untrustworthy voting machines that McPherson tried to slip past us. Our uh, friend Brad Friedman called it one of the most important outcomes uh, in all of the races in the U.S., and we agree. We did note with some sadness that uh, in our pre-election show, if the liberal, the conservative, and yours truly all agree that someone probably ought to win, it seems to be a death sentence. And we extend our apologies to Tom McClintock for saying that we thought he'd be a good lieutenant governor, because the next lieutenant governor in California is going to be John Garamendi. We felt pretty good about the chances of Q and R, those measures that would turn over hundreds of millions of dollars to Las Vegas billionaires to run a, uh, a sports arena here in Sacramento, not only went down in defeat, it was beaten four to one, which shows that sometimes the the best efforts of local politicians to sell out the populace for the benefit of local rich guys, well, sometimes fails. California rejected that that wretched proposition that would have made uh, abortions uh, more of a problem for those who need them. They did, however, also turn down the cigarette tax and the alternate energy proposals that uh, I thought would have been a pretty decent idea. And we also agreed unanimously that all those bond issues were probably a bad idea. Again, the kiss of death, Radio Parallax, it appears that all of them passed, committing California citizens to something like $37 billion in bonds, and of course the interest on those bonds, which we're all going to pay. We're pleased to note in the 5th Congressional District, our candidate of choice, the Green candidate, Jeff Kravitz, made a respectable showing, 4 percentage points for a... Uh, For a guy that spent, uh, well, uh, apparently just about nothing on the race. We hope we'll hear more from Mr. Kravitz in the future. And Radio Parallax would like to take credit for the defeat of Richard Pombo. And while pundits all over the state of California are hailing Pete McCloskey's appearance on Radio Parallax as perhaps being the turning point in the downfall of Mr. Pombo, we don't feel we can take credit for that. Well, at at least not full credit. And we do note, with some sadness that uh, that Charlie Brown, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Brown of the Air Force, uh, didn't quite manage to edge out John Doolittle. And uh, you know, if, if only his public relations man had been able to secure that interview with him, well, maybe we'd have gotten Doolittle too. Don't worry, we're going to give Ted a good talking to about that and see if we can't uh, do better in 08. But looking out from California across the rest of the nation, uh, well, there was a lot of good news. Rick Santorum, a man who was being groomed for a future presidential run, a man whom William Bennett, yes, gambling addicted William Bennett acting as one of the the wise talking heads for CNN said, "Don't you worry. Someone's going to draft Santorum for the presidency." Well, we we think someone should send Mr. Bennett back to the crap tables <laughs> because Rick Santorum's political future is uh, is not likely to rise again anytime soon. He got beaten almost 2-1 to one in Pennsylvania when he was the incumbent. This kind of reminds us of the headline we saw here on, on uh, Google News about uh, Phil Angelides saying, Don't worry, he'll be back. To that we say, well, good, good. We hear there's a lot of stray dogs down there in Elk Grove and they may need someone to you know, get a net out and catch quite a few of them. We think Phil's just the guy for the job. We spoke to Professor Bob Fitrakis about his run for the governorship in Ohio not once but twice, and we're pleased to note that Kenneth Blackwell, he who delivered the state of Ohio to Bush-Cheney in 2004, was crushed in his run for the governorship. Oddly enough, the same thing happened to Katherine Harris in a run for the Florida Senate, where she was beaten soundly after after getting no help whatsoever from the Bush administration. After all, what's she ever done for them? And speaking of standing by those who have served you so well over the years, we noted, as you did, that Donald Rumsfeld was quietly given his walking papers the day after the election. It looks as though Rummy is not going to break Robert McNamara's uh, record as the longest-serving Secretary of Defense. To that we say, as we've said before on this program, thank God! I mean, what would he have to have done to have gotten fired before Election Day? Accidentally detonated a nuclear bomb at Camp David? We do have to cite the email sent us by Jane regarding the appointment of Robert Gates to replace Rumsfeld. She wrote, I suppose there weren't too many more Iran-Contra figures left to choose from. The Bush administration needs to know in advance that you're willing to lie to Congress. Jane noted in an addendum, which we have to admit is even funnier, that until recently, Robert Gates was the head of the National Association of Eagle Scouts. Anyway, there's so much that we could say about uh, this election, we're going to try and confine it to something like 18 minutes for this segment, because don't worry, we'll return to this topic in the weeks to come. But a lot of folks predicted that the libertarian sentiment out there in America, people who regard themselves as more or less... uh, social liberals and fiscal conservatives those who don't want to see the government trying to solve all the problems by setting up programs who nevertheless want them to stay out of our private lives well they were going to be a factor and it appears they were for starters the difference between john doolittle and charlie brown was less than that garnered by the libertarian candidate had colonel brown been able to capture that vote he'd be going to congress come january but you know again. We'll be hearing more from Charlie Brown in the future. We'll certainly be hearing a lot more from Nancy Pelosi in the future, the first Californian and the first woman to become Speaker of the House. Pelosi's promised that within the first hundred hours of the new Congress, Democrats would emphasize six priorities that include increasing the national minimum wage to $7.25. The House Democrats seem to also like the The novel idea of screening 100% of the 7 million-plus ocean cargo containers that arrive annually in Oakland, Long Beach, and the nation's other ports. Imagine making an effort to check all of the containers that are the most likely way someone would smuggle an atomic bomb in the United States instead of spending it on a war in Iraq. Hmm. Let's see how far that crazy idea gets. Nancy Pelosi is going to get to direct which bills are going to reach the House floor, and she's going to pick who gets plum assignments. We're going to see a lot of Californians, uh, due to their seniority, running a lot of committees in Congress. It's predicted that the House Government Reform Committee under Representative Henry Waxman of Los Angeles is likely to investigate the Bush administration aggressively. Tom Lantos of San Mateo is a senior Democrat on the House International Relations Committee. It's felt that that panel is certainly going to become a forum for critiquing Iraq policies. I was rather amused by seeing the comments by Michael Doyle writing for the Bees Washington Bureau that that it's expected that um, fresh hearings are likely to be held for ethnic political disputes such as An Armenian Genocide Resolution Favored by San Joaquin Valley Lawmakers. Now there's a topic Congress should spend some time on. The Armenian Genocide by the Turks, which took place under the Ottoman Empire. That's a mighty timely topic. You know, one wag was calling the Democrats before this election, the other war party. And we certainly hope that... uh, When it's clear to politicians that the public has had enough of Iraq, that they're going to step up to the plate and do something about it. Because up to this point, uh, it all seems to be, gee, we did vote to authorize the war, but I think we were misled. I hope some of you caught Dick Gephardt being asked that question on CNN on election night. Uh, uh, Congressman uh, do you feel now that you shouldn't have voted to authorize the war in Iraq? And he's, well, uh, obviously hasn't turned out very well. <laughs> like a politician, he hemmed and hawed and refused to admit that he was, uh, you know, an idiot. Anyway, our final observation about the election uh, might be that uh, a lot of people have noted that the Republican Party is the party of the well-to-do. But... There's an awful lot of signs that Karl Rove's effort to uh, basically broaden the Republican base into the old Ku Klux Klan, anti-civil rights, uh, southern constituency may be backfiring. Wrote Ronald Brownstein in the LA Times, The results of the election raise fundamental questions about the viability of the strategy Bush and his chief political advisor, Karl Rove, have pursued to build a lasting Republican political majority. Republicans were overwhelmed by an energized Democratic base. In many places, the results suggested that socially moderate, upscale voters were breaking cleanly for the Democrats. Said Democratic pollster Al Quinlan, the storyline really is that the Democrats are winning the middle. And considering how far the Republican Party has tried to move to the right, to that we say for the final time in this segment, thank God. And on that note, I think we'll take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. All right, we are back. Let's, let's close out today's show with a little bit of science and other things, shall we? The uh, bumper music we started with, of course, is uh, more or less appropriate for this item, which comes to us from New Scientist magazine, noting that, whatever else it might be, it seems clear at this point that the Loch Ness Monster is not a plesiosaur. Said the magazine, has been described as a snake threaded through the body of a turtle, and some imaginative people think there's one living in Loch Ness. The plesiosaur, a marine reptile that lived 160 million years ago, looked like nothing alive today, with a neck that was two meters long. That's about six feet for those of you who are metrically challenged. The neck was as long as the body and tail combined. Well, scientist Leslie No of the Sedgwick Museum of Cambridge, UK, has explored the question of why the plesiosar needed such a long neck. He's decided that they used these necks to reach down and feed on soft-bodied animals living on the seafloor, or at least so Noe told the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology meeting in Ottawa, Canada last month. By calculating the articulation of the neck bones... Dr. Noe concluded the neck was flexible and could move most easily when pointing downward. The neck was a feeding tube collecting soft, bodied prey, he says. The small skulls of the plesiosaurs couldn't cope with hard-shelled prey. From this, he derived the disappointing news that, quote, the osteology of the neck makes it absolutely certain that the plesiosaur could not lift its head up, swan-like, out of the water. Noe says this rules the reptile out as a candidate for the Loch Ness Monster. But things look better for uh, oddball life in oddball places as regards the planet Mars. According to Mexican researcher Dr. Rafael Navarro Gonzalez, who went down to the Atacama Desert in Chile and examined the soil that he found there, It seems that uh, when we landed NASA's Viking spacecraft on Mars 30 years ago with an express purpose of testing the soil to see if it could find life, well, maybe the craft wasn't properly equipped to make that judgment. When Navarro Gonzalez took, uh, took samples of the soil from the Atacama and tested them with the same method, he got the same negative results. But we do know that life does exist in these locations. That's evidenced by trace amounts of organic molecules that register on more sensitive equipment. We would refer you to the web for more information on this subject. Uh, I did chance to fly over the Atacama Desert once many years ago, and I gotta say, it, uh, it sure looked like Mars looking down out of the aircraft. I mean, there was not a shrub to be seen, and yet we know there's microbial life that, th- that, that survives even in these driest of dry conditions. They don't thrive, they don't do real well, but they do manage to hang on. So, uh, you know, we need to go back to Mars and check this out. Which is exactly what scientists plan to do in the next 10 years. They plan to uh, bring a piece of Mars back to Earth for examination. And uh, speaking of South America, I was quite tickled by an article in Newsweek, uh, October 30th issue, noting that uh, Bolivian President Evo Morales recently implored the United Nations to give the coca leaf a new life. As a former coca farmer himself, Morales has asked the General Assembly to focus on coca's possible future as the raw material for a lucrative consumer goods industry, not its nefarious present. As the source of the international cocaine trade. Morales wants to double the 59,000 acres uh, that, that Bolivia currently sets aside to grow coca for legal uses. And armed with scientific studies, Bolivian officials are attacking the impression that coca itself is harmful to health. They argue that legal products could be a viable alternative to growing the plant for the use in cocaine. Since the year 2000, small companies have put out 30 different products. Coca bread and pastas, coca toothpaste, coca shampoos, ointments, candies, and liquors. One company now has a soft drink called Evo Cola in the works. I do have to say, from a medical standpoint, if you go down to the Andean Republics, Ecuador, Peru, and Bolivia, you will find that coca tea is a staple. And yes, one does get a little bit of a lift from the tiny amounts of cocaine present in the beverage. I was informed when traveling around in Bolivia that you need 100,000 pounds of coca leaf to make one pound of cocaine powder. So this stuff is pretty dilute. Yet, it's pretty much the equivalent of your basic Starbucks shot of caffeine that uh, everyone seems to rely upon here in the U.S. of A., And we've given away this secret before, but I think we should do it again and let you know that every Coca-Cola you ever drank contained coca. It still is Coca-Cola. It's just decocainized coca leaf that they use as a natural flavoring, which is the exact equivalent of, uh, you know, a decaffeinated cup of coffee. It tastes like coffee, but it doesn't have the caffeine jolt. Noted the Newsweek article uh, referring to the flavoring in Coca-Cola, noting it's an exception to the United Nations ban that many experts say was negotiated for Coca-Cola. It allows the export of coca from which certain active ingredients have been extracted, i.e., the cocaine. Noted the magazine Coca-Cola, which has long declined to discuss the, quote, secret formula for its signature soda, also declined to comment for the story in Newsweek. I don't profess to be an expert on, uh, on the, ver- the assorted virtues and vices of caffeine versus cocaine, but I do know this. If you overdosed on caffeine versus a therapeutic dose to the same degree that you did with cocaine, you'd be killed dead many times over. You can go to any 7-Eleven, and buy some stay-awake pills that contain caffeine that can deliver a fatal dose if you are dumb enough to take the whole box at one time. Does this potential misuse of caffeine mean that we should ban it? Well, no. No. Caffeine remains uh, the world's most popular drug. It's basically pretty safe, and it works. And uh, so you will find does coca tea if you travel down to South America and in really tiny doses. Caffeine is pretty much interchangeable with uh, cocaine in microscopic quantities. is pretty much interchangeable with caffeine. So, you know, we wish Evo Morales and uh, the Republic of Bolivia well with its uh, effort to find, uh, you know, a new market for the coca leaf. A chemical I think we might be more concerned about is the pesticide methyl bromide. This was banned under an international treaty two years ago, excepting for uses deemed critical. Well, U.S. officials have now secured exemptions to the ban so that growers here in America can use it to kill nematodes and other soil pests for tomatoes, strawberries, and other crops. The Bush administration uh, worked hard last week to obtain international approval for this exception. This decision, by the way, came over the objections of European nations and despite the recommendations of the treaty's own technical committee. That panel had urged a more substantial cut in the U.S. request on grounds that other countries have proven that alternative chemicals and methods can successfully replace methyl bromide. Which, by the way, in addition to being a nasty pesticide, uh, destroys the ozone layer. In an even scarier story, in fact a lot scarier story, been revealed that a new strain of the H5N1 bird flu has emerged in China and that the human pandemic vaccines, which are now being developed, will not protect against this new strain. Uh, the worst news is that nearly three times as many Chinese poultry are infected with H5N1 now as last year, meaning there's a greater chance of human infections. In 2004, an investigation by New Scientist magazine concluded that vaccinating poultry in China against bird flu can lead to the emergence of novel strains that can circulate undetected in vaccinated birds unless there are scrupulous controls. That now appears to be taking place. So we will continue to follow that story, which is a a great concern to all of us on planet Earth. We're also going to continue to follow the story about the possible war with Iran. Uh, We refer you to Nancy Brand's Ward article in the Sacramento News and Review, which was about Daniel Ellsberg's appearance here in Sacramento, which we reported on for you uh, the week before last. On October 22nd, Daniel Ellsberg spoke to several hundred people at a fundraiser for the Sacramento area's Physicians for Social Responsibility and uh, had some pretty scary things to say. I'd refer you to the article for an excellent uh, summary of uh, what some of those things were. The U.S. is talking about using nuclear weapons in Iran, and we should be very concerned that people are actually thinking that that is a sane, possible, viable military option. It's really not. And we need to keep talking about that. Uh, James Bamford, uh, we've we've been trying to get him to come on the show. I think we're going to get him in the next few weeks, but he's a very busy guy. And again, we would refer you to his article in Rolling Stone on the next war, that being Iran. At least if some people get their way in the Pentagon. Also from the Things We Should Talk About file comes from some comments by Ross K. Baker in the Los Angeles Times, noting that there was a recent national summit on school violence. Baker noted that it was remarkable for what wasn't on the agenda. This uh, summit was convened after this horrific uh, shooting death of five Amish schoolgirls in Pennsylvania. The conference drew President Bush and Education Secretary Margaret Spellings. They and a group of experts discussed making schools safer by using metal detectors and training students in anger management. But one obvious topic never came up. The easy availability of guns. Said Baker, Republican politicians won't mention gun control for fear of jeopardizing their contributions from the NRA. Democrats have either been intimidated into silence by the gun lobby or bought off. Said Baker, the party's new strategy for winning back the White House, in fact, requires that its national candidates own a shotgun or two and proclaim their love of hunting. We should not be surprised if Senator Hillary Rodham Clinton shows up at the 2008 Democratic Convention togged out like Annie Oakley, shooting cigars out of the mouth of her husband. All right, let's do a few uh, obituaries, as we like to do on this program, and we reserve them for this segment. The first is that of Benito Martinez Abrogan. Mr. Martinez passed away in Cuba on October 11th, aged about 120 Apparently his precise age was something of a mystery, because according to his Cuban identity papers, he'd been in Cuba since 1925, but his age on arrival was a bit uncertain. He'd just come over from Haiti. But there seems credible evidence he could have been as old as 125. Noted The Economist magazine, like most Cubans, he had no car. He biked or walked barefoot, or waited for a fume-spilling bus, with that patience and stoicism that calms down stress. Since food was rationed in Cuba, he did not eat much except what he could grow. Apart from all that, said the magazine, his life was not exemplary. He smoked until the age of 108 or so, cigarettes being handed out cheap among the rations. He never married, but chased many women. His fresh diet was mostly starchy cassava and sweet potatoes cooked in pork fat. Asked the secret of his youthfulness, he said he had never cheated a man or said bad things of other people. And he had a good socialist motivation to survive. He wished someday, he said, to shake Fidel Castro's hand. Note of The Economist Cuba's cradle to grave health care had, in fact, done little for him. He did not consult a doctor until he was ra- around 115. Anyway, I just love the picture of this spry old guy in, in uh, The Economist magazine and thought we'd better tell you about him. We'll probably never be able to establish whether he really was 120 or maybe even 125, but it seems he probably did hold the world record, which is acknowledged to be that of Elizabeth Bolden of Tennessee, who was only 116. And from the footnote figures in world history file, we have uh, the obituary of Trevor Burbick, found murdered a couple of weeks back in Kingston, Jamaica. He was a former world heavyweight boxing champion, who in 1981 fought a 39-year-old Muhammad Ali in the latter's last professional fight. In a grotesque mismatch, Burbick pounded Ali into defeat, and Ali never fought again. In 1986, Burbick became World Boxing Council heavyweight champion after defeating Pinklin Thomas. But eight months later, a young Mike Tyson took the title from him in the second round of one of the most dramatic bouts in boxing history. Burbick fought some other noted heavyweights in his career, defeated John Tate in his uh, professional debut, and uh, 10 months later, uh, lost a decision to Larry Holmes. Burbick never recovered from his loss to Tyson. After slipping down the rankings, he served 15 months in prison. After violating his parole, he was ordered deported from the U.S. and fled to Canada. In 2002, he returned to his homeland of Jamaica, where he remained for good. And we have an obituary of sorts to report uh, in in the... uh, The Flaming Out of Reverend Ted Haggard. We had talked about Reverend Haggard uh, at length in this program about a year ago. While the names uh, Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson are pretty much household names in America, James Dobson and Ted Haggard were possibly even more influential with uh, America's evangelical community. Haggard was part of a phone call every week to President George W. Bush. The Reverend Haggard was uh, placed on administrative leave from his 14,000-member New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and is actually now undergoing counseling for the fact that he, um, well, for evidently the past three years, he's been engaging in regular homosexual encounters with a male escort who also sold him methamphetamine. I kind of knew the Reverend Ted was going to go down pretty hard when his initial fallback excuse was, well... Okay, maybe I got a massage from this guy. And maybe I did buy some methamphetamine because I was curious, but I threw it away. I didn't, didn't use any of it. Anyway, we want to talk a little bit more about the fall of Reverend Haggard in the future and, uh, and the rather courageous figure of Mike Jones, the escort who decided that, you know, it just made me angry. He said that here's somebody preaching about gay marriage and going behind the scenes to have gay sex. Anyway, Ted Haggard is a very interesting fellow, and we're going to, you know, hopefully have more to say about him in some future program. We knew when we talked about him last time, he was a guy worthy of some discussion, and, uh, you know, he remains that. All right, let's close the show with uh, an an article I was quite amused by in uh, last week's The Week magazine titled The Last Word. It was uh, an investigation of certain science myths that are so enduring that people hate to let them go, but uh, editors at LiveScience.com went after them and and nailed a few of them. Let's just talk about the three that we've talked about on this program before. We talked to you previously about the myth that humans only use 10% of their brains. Well... The facts are that uh, MRI imaging clearly demonstrates, you know, even with fancy colors no less, that humans put most of their cerebral cortex to good use, even while dozing. Someone pretty much pulled that 10% to figure out of thin air years ago and it just doesn't seem to want to go away. We told you this one, which I never believed when I heard this one even as a kid, that the Great Wall of China is the only man-made structures visible from space. The facts, in fact, are there are uh, numerous man-made objects that astronauts can spot from low Earth orbit. Uh, They can see things like, you know, the Great Pyramids. They can see trains. When they first reported they could see trains moving on tracks, people at ground control didn't believe them. But it's it's true. You can. If there's enough contrast, you can easily see a train from 200 miles up. But the full reporting of the myth was the Great Wall of China was the only man-made object visible from the moon. Well, (laughs) absolutely not. There's no way anybody can see the Great Wall of China or anything else man-made from the moon. At least not without a very good telescope. Not mentioned in this article is the myth about the fact that uh, people seem to go nuts and hospital emergency rooms go crazy when there's a full moon. I'm here to tell you, it just ain't so. And yes, I did follow the full moon cycles to see whether there was a correlation, and no, there isn't. If you want to fight me over that, please send an email at info at radioparallax.com. But i got to tell you, you're fighting an uphill battle on that one. But let's close the show with this one. The myth is that water drains backward in the southern hemisphere due to the Earth's rotation. Well, the facts are, and this has been demonstrated by studies done at university uh, testing labs, not only is the Earth's rotation too weak to affect the direction of water flowing in a drain, you can easily demonstrate by going into a washroom that water whirlpools form both ways depending mostly on the sink's structure. Actually, it depends mostly on the motion in the water, not the hemisphere you're in. And yes, I've won bar bets on this one. <laughs> if you want to wager on this issue, I'll be happy to take your money again. So again, let... Give me some feedback at info at radioparallax.com. But, uh, you know, I knew when I was a third grader, and I heard that story, that it was false because I paid a lot of attention to what the water did when it went down the drain. Think about it. If the Coriolis force would counteract water going down the drain one way, then it would tend to slow down to a stop, wouldn't it? You ever see that happen? Me neither. That's it for today's program. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced, as all of them are, by Edward McMillan. We'll see you next week at the same time.